Psalm 89 is where we're at this evening. In Psalm 89, you'll notice the prescript at the top of it before verse 1 begins tells us that it is a contemplation of Ethan, uh, the Ezraite. And uh, this man, Ethan, the Ezraite, we do have mention of him in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 31. And he is mentioned as one of the wise men in the earth. During the days of Solomon, as the Bible is trying to compare the great wisdom of Solomon, it speaks of Ethan and Heman and a few others uh, who were wise and how Solomon's wisdom excelled even there. So one of the things we do know about this man is that he was a follower of the Lord. He was someone who loved the Lord and he was someone who was known or had a degree of recognition for being a man of great wisdom that he lived wisely, and some really wise things we see him conveying here in this psalm in particular as the Spirit uses him to record this particular psalm that we have in front of us. And one of the things that he really emphasizes, we'll see, well, really two things, I guess. He puts great emphasis upon the love of the Lord. Oftentimes, sometimes it's used the word mercy. It's that Hebrew term hesed, which speaks of the, the covenant love of God or the covenant mercy and kindness of God. And then he also puts great emphasis, I believe it's about seven or so times, in regards to the faithfulness of the Lord. And what he really seems to be trying to emphasize is the love of God and the great faithfulness of the Lord, despite the unfaithfulness of you and I as people at times, despite the fact that we may find unfaithful people in our lives and in our human relationships that, as the Bible declares in other places, great is thy faithfulness regarding the Lord. And, you know, and this is an important theme to really develop and come to understanding in all of our lives. And I'll tell you, a real mark of wisdom, I think, in the life of any person, and Ethan here represents that for us, is when you really come to focus and emphasize upon the faithfulness of God over everything else. I mean, certainly the Bible calls us to be faithful. We don't want to diminish that. The Bible tells us that we should walk faithfully and that we should live by faith and be faithful unto the Lord. Uh, but so often our faithfulness can be fickle and, and, and we can deviate and have ups and downs, but there's something about the faithfulness of God to build your life upon that. You know, the Bible tells us, you know, that even when we are faithless, He, God, remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And there's something very wonderful about the theme of the faithfulness of God, that he is steady, that he's secure, he's stable, he's like a rock, he never changes. And how many times again and again we could all perhaps tonight give testimony of the times where we have seen God's faithfulness portrayed in our lives and demonstrated to us in different ways. And and so this wise man, Ethan, he... He really puts the focus upon that in this psalm in particular, and particularly how it relates to God's covenant faithfulness to David, and despite what happened with his descendants, that God still honored his word and his covenant promise that he gave to David, which we'll see a little bit more discussed further in the psalm. But he begins the psalm saying, as a declaration, verse 1, I will sing, he says, of the mercies of the Lord forever, And with my mouth, he says, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness, he says, you shall establish in the very heavens. So he begins the psalm right away by drawing attention, notice, to the mercies of the Lord. Again, there's that Hebrew term, and that term speaks of the covenant love of God or the the kindness and loving kindness of God as he uses that term mercies there, which he says the mercies and covenant kindness of the Lord, he, he says, notice, that will last forever. And so he says, in light of this and knowing as well the great faithfulness of the Lord, which he describes in verse 1, the faithfulness of the Lord to all generations, that he wanted to declare it, and the faithfulness of the Lord that was established in the heavens, which means it's eternal, it's unchanging. That which is established in the heavens is something that's settled It cannot be altered. That's why I love, we'll get to Psalm 119, where it says of the very word of God as well, that Psalm Psalm 119 is all about the word of God. And one of the great declarations there, it says, Lord, your word is settled in the heavens. In other words, the word of God is established and settled 
in eternity, in the heavens, in the place where opinions don't change, ideas don't become different, people don't say that's not culturally relevant anymore, that's not politically correct anymore. In the heavens, God says, what has been true from Genesis 1-1, when I first created the heavens and the earth, and even prior to that, before the heavens and the earth were created, with God, absolute truth is absolute truth. And he's going to say later in this psalm, righteousness and justice are the foundations of God's throne. And what's true and faithful and right with God is reliable. It will never change. It's settled there in the heavens. And the psalm has found great encouragement in this. Why? Because it's the stability of God that gives any degree of stability to all of us as kind of unstable human beings, right? And to some degree, we all know our own instability from time to time. So there's something very wonderful about having a stabilizing influence in your life, and that stabilizing influence is God because he's a rock. His mercies will last forever. His faithfulness will endure to all generations. So the psalmist wants to celebrate that. So he says here in verse one, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord again. We, we see this reference. We've seen it in all the Psalms repeatedly, this Jewish hymn book, constant references to worship of the Lord. And there are many ways to worship the Lord. We don't want to discount that. Worship is just surrendering our will over to God in its most simplistic sense from a biblical perspective. First time worship shows up in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham chooses to offer his son Isaac, and he didn't have a guitar, he didn't have a hymn book, he wasn't singing praise songs, he was laying down his will for the will of the Lord to do what pleased God. And really, that is the essence of what worship is. Now, one of the ways we do that the Bible tells us one of the practical expressions of worship, there are many, but one of them, as we see all throughout the Psalms, is singing unto the Lord. That makes total sense to me because in our you know, sinful humanity and the inhibitions of insecurity and this and that, you just, well, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, like, I didn't like singing before I got saved. I just... I didn't go around, hey, let me sing, listen to my voice. I just, it, it wasn't something I, most people aren't naturally inclined to do that, right? You know, we talk about those who serenade or sing a song to their loved one. Well, the only reason they're doing that is because they're in love. And when you fall in love, you do dumb stuff, right? You, you, you do things you wouldn't normally do. And so you may serenade someone to, uh, you know, kind of impress them or win their heart. Well, you know, this is kind of the idea. When we sing to the Lord, it's an expression of, Lord, I don't care what I sound like. I don't care what I feel like. I don't care what's going on in my life. I'm going to sing because you've asked me to sing to you. And for some crazy reason, when I lay down my will and do it to express to you in some way, thank you, God. I praise you, God. You're good. You're faithful. You're kind. You're loving. You're merciful, whatever it is. There's something that blesses God in that, and so we do it as an act of love, as an act of worship to him. And how many times we've seen this repeated phrase, and God's repeated it, so that's why I'm repeating it and being redundant, where he says, I will sing. How many times have we seen that repeated in the Psalms? I will. The idea is the will's involved. It's a choice. And so he says, I will, because it's the right thing to do, and because I love God, and I want to give him honor and give something back to him, I will sing, he says. I will do it. I'll do it for the Lord. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. And he says, and I'm going to do it forever. With the eternal soul that I have, I'm going to do it forever. And to some degree, all of us who have experienced the gift of God, which is eternal life, when you enter into heaven and you're around the throne of God, guess what one of your main occupations is going to be? <laughs> it's going to be singing unto the Lord forever. That's, that's a lot of what they're doing around the throne of God. Because somehow when you're in God's presence and you see how absolutely incredible he really is, and we don't recognize it in these human bodies because we're limited still, but when you're in an eternal resurrected body and you're in the eternal dimension and you continue to see more of God's greatness and glory and grace and kindness, and imagine for all of eternity, you don't have someone like me or some other you know, donkey-like person trying to communicate the word of God. You have the word of God himself, God the author saying, now let me tell you what I really meant in John 3.16. And he'll start to read, for God so loved the world. Let me tell you what I really, and just imagine for all of eternity, teaching us and revealing things to us and explaining things to us and showing us things. No wonder we will be singing of the mercies of the Lord forever. 
because we'll continue to be blown away. I mean, you know, heaven is going to be just a continual, wonderful, you know, greater development of further understanding. And so he says, I don't want to just sing of the Lord's mercies forever. And, I, and it's not enough just to know the faithfulness of the Lord. Look what he says, verse one as well. He says, and with my mouth, he says, I will, again, here's, here's a choice. There's the, the, the act of the will again, with my mouth, will I make known your faithfulness to all generations? He says, I've come to know your faithfulness, God, but I also feel like I have a degree of obligation to tell other people about the faithfulness of the Lord. You know, just to tell other people the testimony of your own experiences with God's faithfulness. It's one of the most wonderful things we can share with people. I mean, think about all the kind of meaningless, crazy things we, we do talk to people about. The conversations we engage in all day long, you know, work and with friends and, and the things that we talk about. And even as, as Christians, you know, we become close and relational and, you know, friendly. And, and we talk about sometimes a lot of really kind of trivial stuff, sometimes probably not even very edifying or worthless stuff. And, and how wonderful would it be if, if we said, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to try and keep making known God's faithfulness to everybody. Hey, can I tell you something God did in my life? Can, can, did I ever tell you the time when God was faithful in, in this situation in my life? And just telling people the faithfulness of the Lord, rehearsing and sharing that. He says, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. The idea is not just my generation, but I want to make sure the generations to come, those behind me, those younger than me, that they know the faithfulness of God. Because why? Then when I pass off the scene someday, Hopefully, they'll know there is a faithful, reliable, loving, good God that they can depend on, and he'll be faithful in their lives as well. So again, we should all have that motivation here. The psalmist, this is a wise man. He's already shown his wisdom in one verse. He's singing of the mercies of the Lord forever. He's saying, man, I've known your faithfulness, God, and one of the ways I'm going to show wisdom is I'm going to make your faithfulness known to all other generations for I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. And again, he says, Lord, your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. It will be demonstrated in the heavens forever. You'll establish it and make it evident as we're there in the heavens. Verse 3 now, you notice the language seems to change. This, interesting, after the psalmist speaks verses 1 and 2 in the first person under the inspiration of the Spirit, as you come to verse 3 and 4, the voice seems to be now directly the voice of the Lord in the first person. So it seems here now that this is almost in a prophetic sense. Now you have the very voice of God himself, not Ethan the Ezraite speaking. Of course, he's conveying it, but it's almost as if now God first person kind of interjects something that he wants to say. And maybe it's in relation to the fact that uh, Ethan just spoke about the mercies of the Lord and making known the faithfulness of the Lord. And God says, great. Can I remind you of an example of that? And he speaks in verse three and four. God says, this is the voice of the Lord. Now I have made a covenant with my chosen, a covenant promise, a commitment, a contract. That's the idea of a covenant. I've made a covenant with my chosen and I have sworn to my servant, David, your seed that is the offspring coming from your body, your seed, I will establish, notice keyword forever, that means perpetually, eternally, and build up your throne, not just for David's generation, he says, but to all generations. And then our words say a lot, or think about that or consider that. So here, the Lord reminds of one of the greatest demonstrations of his faithfulness and of his mercy and kindness and that is that he is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God, that what he promises with his mouth, by his hand he performs, and that God makes promises to his people, and he keeps his promises, and he faithfully fulfills his promises. No matter what people do, whether they err or make mistakes, God's a covenant-keeping God. And one of the many covenants we see in the word of God was the covenant that God made with David, the Davidic covenant. Of course, it comes to us from 2 Samuel chapter 7, where remember, David wanted to build the Lord a house. And, and he had this wonderful desire in his heart that he wanted to build a house for the Lord. He loved the Lord. And, and David thought, man, I need to build God an incredible temple to honor him and to glorify him. And ultimately, remember, the Lord, in a sense, essence said to David, kind of thanks 
but no thanks. David, I see that's in your heart. It's great that it's in your heart. And remember, as David first talked about building the house for the Lord, we're told that Nathan hears about this and he says, David, that's great. Go and do all that's in your heart. That's a wonderful desire. And Nathan there erred because he spoke without consulting with the Lord first, and he encouraged David to do something which seemed like a really wonderful idea, and it was a good idea. It was even a, let's say, a godly idea, but in essence wasn't God's idea. And see, as I said before, we can have good ideas, and we can even have godly ideas, but that doesn't always mean something is God's idea. Because sometimes God has a specific idea of maybe how he wants to do something or when or the way he wants to do something. So God says to Nathan, Nathan, you got to go back and talk to David. He's a man of war. I've used him as a military king. He's fought battles and he's got blood on his hands. And I can't have someone like that build a house for me, a house of worship. I'm going to use his son Solomon to do that. But you need to go back and tell him. David, I'm so proud that you had that in your heart. And just because you had it in your heart, I'm going to reward you just for having it in your heart. But, but I need to use someone different to accomplish the desire that's in your heart. And David had to humbly hear that and accept that. And as David gets this news back from Nathan about this, that he can't build the house, God basically, in his incredible mercy and kindness and his love for David, says to David, David, you can't build me a house, but I'll tell you what. I'm actually going to build you a house. You think you want to do something great for me? I actually want to do something even better for you. In other words, I I want to do more to bless you than you want to do to bless me. And so God gives this covenant promise to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me just, for sake of refreshment, read what the psalmist is referring to here. Nathan goes back and he says, you need to go tell David, I took you from the sheepfold from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, he says, Second Samuel 7, 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I do plan to do that, David. You, you are hearing me right. That is what my will is ultimately. And I'll plant them that they may dwell in a place on their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously. Since that time, I commanded judges to be over my people and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you, here was God's covenant promise, that he will make you a house. The idea is not a physical house, a dynasty. It would be David's descendants. God would do something through David's dynasty. He would give to him a lineage through his descendants. When your days are fulfilled, he says, And you rest with your fathers when you die. I will set up your seed from your offspring, your descendants, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, not a physical house, a spiritual house and and God's promise. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David gets this word from the Lord. I want to build you a house, a dynasty, and from your seed... He says, I will put one of your descendants on the throne. He says, and your descendant will reign on that throne forever. Not just during the time, forever, which means an eternal reign. And when David heard that, David understood very clearly as the spirit gave him understanding that in essence, God was saying, David, I am going to privilege you to be the very family line through which the Messiah the savior of the world, the savior of Israel, the prince, the king who's been promised prophetically, he is going to come through your seed, through your family line, and ultimately the Messiah will be a son of David, a a, a physical descendant of David. And God gave this promise and covenant identifying how the Messiah would come into the world. And when David heard this, this was an incredible honor. Remember, he was blown away. I mean, he just was astonished that God would do this. As King David went and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And if this was a small thing in your sight, you've also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come in this manner of man, O Lord. Now, what more can David say for you, Lord God, know your servant? And he says, do, Lord, according to your own heart, For you have done all these great things to make your servant 
know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord. There is none beside you or any according to all that we have heard with your ears. So David just begins to, you know, thank and worship the Lord. He's humbled. He's amazed that God would offer this privilege to him. Why? Because David knew that he was a flawed man. I mean, you would talk about an honor. He just got the honor of being told through your household, your family line and descendants, I'm going to bring the Messiah, my son, the son of God, the savior into the world. And David is amazed. What incredible mercy, God. You would choose somebody like me for that? Who am I, Lord, to have that kind of privilege? I mean, and I, I certainly have blown it plenty of times. I, I mean, I, Lord, I'd be glad just to get into the kingdom, let alone have anything to do with your kingdom. And so David's just overwhelmed at the kindness of the Lord and the faithfulness of the Lord that he would keep this promise to keep a throne you know, of David carrying out through eternity. And did David's descendants err and have their ups and downs? Yes, but God ultimately still honored his promise. And this is why the psalmist here, it seems, references the covenant of God with his chosen servant, David, swearing to him that his seed would be established Again, verse 4 of Psalm 89, established forever and his throne to all generations. And this was an incredible testament to the faithfulness of God in David's life as one of the Lord's servants, that though he did not get the privilege to build the house of the Lord, he got an even greater privilege. And let me just say as a sidelight to that before I move on, don't ever discount the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God, and the wisdom of God that even if you have a really great desire on your heart and God doesn't let that desire come to pass, trust that God's wisdom, what he knows, his mercy and his faithfulness, not only is he gonna help you with that, he's gonna do something even bigger that will blow your mind even more because that's just the nature. And he sees what you have in your heart and he'll always honor the desire in your heart because sometimes we have a desire in our heart, but it's just not the right design for us for whatever reason or God's selection to bring about what we have a desire for. God rewards you just for the desire, just the desire. Lord, says, I see that desire in your heart and I'm gonna reward you spiritually, eternally just for wanting to do that, just for the desire alone. But, but let God do things the way that he wants to do them and know that if he's determined to do it, as he did with David here, to do whatever he is going to do, he says, then God, go for it. Bring about this eternal throne, the son of God coming through that. And then verse five now goes back to Ethan. It says that the Ezraite, in speaking again in the first person as the spirit leads him, talking more about the great faithfulness and goodness of God. He says, verse five, and the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. Again, whether he's speaking of the atmospheric heavens, the stellar heavens, or the eternal heavens, when the Bible uses the word heavens, there are three different heavens that could be referring to. The, the first heavens is the atmospheric heavens, the second being the stellar heavens, you know, the stars, the moon, the planet, the solar systems, and then the eternal heavens. And all of those things, whether it's creation, or whether it's what's happening in the eternal heavens, he says, these things will praise your wonders, O Lord, and your faithfulness also. Notice he says, in the assembly, I like that term, in the assembly of the saints. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Or who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? So he says, Lord, who is like you? Who, who is there to compare to you? And in that sense, the psalmist makes a very important and true statement that there is something that God experiences and that we experience that in some ways are completely exclusive to us. There is something that we see as human beings that God can never see and never experience. You know what that is? Our equals. God has no equal. Every day you and I see and experience something, we see other people around us, there are equals. They're also sinful, broken, flawed people who are weak human beings that need redemption and need God's help in their life. We see our equals all around us. We're all equals in God's sight. But there's one thing that God knows nothing of, and that is an equal. God has no equal. There is no one like God. That's what the Bible teaches. There is, there is only one. There, there is creator and then creation 
So he says here, Lord, who can be compared to you? There is no comparison. That's how great God is, that he is such incredible and set apart and holy and wonderful. He says, who in the heavens, even in the heaven eternal realm, can be compared to the Lord or among the sons of men, can be likened to the Lord, to Jehovah? God, he says, verse 7, is greatly to be feared. Again, that kind of a God should be feared and reverenced, he says, in the assembly of the saints and to be held, notice, to be held in reverence by all those around him. The idea is to stand in awe of God, to revere him as a mighty king. O Lord of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness surrounds you. Again, I like that. Your faithfulness surrounds you. The idea is all around God, his faithfulness. His faithfulness encircles him. Every, you know, in some ways you may fairly say that one of the main attributes, everything else about God's nature is tied back to is his faithfulness, his power, his love, his provision, his protection. All of those things, in a sense, are, are hinging back upon, if you were to draw a circle around God and all these different things going off of the nature of God and his ways and his work, they all really tie back to the faithfulness of the Lord. Thank goodness, great is his faithfulness, right? He says, Lord, your faithfulness, it just, it surrounds you. It encompasses you, your great faithfulness. And he says, that's why you should be honored and feared and reverenced. He says two times here in our set of verses in the assembly of the saints. And I like that. Notice the saints are supposed to be assembled in the assembly of the saints, that's the whole purpose. You know, saints are those who are set apart. The very word church in and of itself, you know, many people don't even realize the very word church that's used in the Greek language, ecclesia, that's translated church, it literally just means a called out assembly. It actually wasn't even a spiritual term in the original you know, usage of it. It was actually a term that just referred to in some ways like a, a political sect or a particular group. It was those who were set apart and called out and they assembled together because they had a common belief and purpose. And so they partnered together and they met together for mutual encouragement and to work together and to share their lives because they were called out. That is, we are, we're separate from the rest. We're a unique community, and so therefore we need to collectively have community and gather together. And so that was, that was the idea of the church, the ecclesia, the called out assembly. And Jesus just took the term and sanctified it. <laughs> and he said, that's what we are. We're the church. We're the called out assembly. We're the assembly of the saints, those set apart for the Lord. And that's what we're to do. We're to assemble together and to fear him and reverence and to honor and to worship him. He says of God, verse nine, speaking more of his greatness, you rule the raging of the sea and when its waves rise, you still them. So there he speaks of the power of God, his power over creation. You rule the raging of the sea. Your translation may render that rule over the, the oceans. And again, just think about the power of the ocean. If you've ever been out in the, I'm not a water person. I get sick very easily. I sit in the backseat of the car. I get sick. I'm not a boat person. But, but on, on an occasion, there have been two occasions, one on our 10-year anniversary many years ago, and then on one other occasion, we, we've gone on, on a cruise, and I have been astonished how even in this massive boat, you can be out in the middle of the ocean, and you still feel current. And, and it just it just... I mean, I didn't care for it, and it's why I've never wanted to go on a cruise since. It's just not my thing because half the time I don't feel good. But the thing that just blows my mind is, man, how strong, and this wasn't even in a storm, how strong must the currents be in oceans to this massive, massive vessel? I mean, the thing looks like a, you know, bigger than a, a city block, or, and you're thinking, and that thing, you still feel that in the boat? And again, keep in mind, these are things the Bible says God creates them, God controls them. He rules over those things, these powerful forces of nature that we see that exist. He says, God, you rule the raging sea. He just completely rules over and controls. He says, and when its waves rise, you still them. God can subdue the power of the seas and the oceans and, and, and waves. And again, so, you know, if you're a surfer, I guess it works both ways. God, you can raise the waves. You can still the waves. And so you can pray it whatever way you want. <laughs> the wonderful thing is God rules over those things. 
And Jesus, remember Mark 4 and other places in the Gospels, we see the fact that he was indeed God in the flesh because what would Jesus do? He would subdue the storms. He would calm the waves, demonstrating that he was God because he would just speak to them, be still, and they would instantly settle down. What a wonderful thing to know that's the kind of God that you know, that I serve, that loves you, that's taken care of you. The same God that, you know, when the waves and raging storms of your life start going out of control, look, the, the, the God who can control the raging sea can control and calm the raging of the storm that goes on inside of your soul or your mind. He's certainly more than able in his power to do that. God, you can settle the sea, settle the storm inside of me. Calm it down, Lord. Make, make, it, make it settle. He says, verse 10, and you have broken Rahab. And that term Rahab, literally the term just means proud one. We see it in the Old Testament at times used interchangeably as a reference to the land of Egypt or the people of Egypt, which were a very proud nation, remember, who rebelled against God. And that was the, the picture there, remember, in, in Pharaoh in Egypt, he hardened his heart towards God. He was proud and rebellious. And so Rahab at times is used interchangeably to refer to the people of Egypt and the ruler there who was a proud one. But look what he says. God, you and your power have done what? Broken Rahab, the proud one, in pieces as one who's slain. You have scattered your enemies, he says, God, with your mighty arm. Again, speaks there of how at times God will use his power not just to rule raging seas, but sometimes he'll use his power to subdue and to humble and to break those who are proud and arrogant in their lives against him. And sometimes God needs to do that. Sometimes, you know, just like with a parent, maybe with a child that gets a little bit rebellious or a little bit arrogant, sometimes you kind of got to break their spirit and put them back in their place and remind them, look, you're two years old, you can't rule the household. You're six years old, you can't rule the household. And sometimes you got to kind of break their stubborn, proud, little arrogant spirit, right? And so... God loves us and God loves people. And sometimes one of the most loving things God can do is break someone's pride and humble a person. And he doesn't do it because he enjoys breaking someone's spirit. He does it because he realizes that a broken and contrite spirit is something that he can then work with and he can do something wonderful. And so he's, God, you've broken the proud ones. He says, verse 11, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. Now he speaks of how God is the owner and the ruler over all creation because he created it. He designed it, so therefore it belongs to him. The heaven, the earth, they're yours. The world and all its fullness, for you have founded them. God, you established these things, so they belong to you. The north and the south, the two poles that exist, he says, from north to south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, which were mountains, Mount Tabor and Mount Hermon, he says, they rejoice in your name. Verse 13, you have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand and high is your right hand. I have those statements underlined there. I just love the reminder of that regarding the greatness of God and his strength, especially when you need God to help in your life sometimes, or I need God's assistant to help me. He says, Lord, you have noticed, he, he calls it a mighty arm and a strong hand. You know, aren't you glad that your God is not weak? You have a mighty arm and a strong hand. Sometimes we'll say to somebody, hey, can you lend me a hand? Can, can you lend me a hand? Well, look, there's nobody that wants to lend you a hand and help you in your life more than God. And the Bible says of God, he has a mighty arm and not only a mighty arm, but a strong hand. And God can extend that mighty arm and extend that strong hand to do whatever needs to be done to help you by his strength and his might. Call upon the Lord for that. Lord, you're strong. Lord, get your hand involved here. Lord, Lord do what you need to do. You know, give me your help. Lend me a hand. Lord, I'm weak. I can't deal with this. Lord, would you extend your strong arm and mighty hand to help me? He says, verse 14, and righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne and mercy and truth go before your face. So again, he speaks of the character of God there, that God's nature is to be righteous, that is to always do what's right. God's nature and character is, it's built upon being what's just and making just 
decisions and executing justice. God is fair. He's, he does things in an equitable way. He's never partial. He gives a fair ruling to everything, righteousness and justice. So everything God does, we can rest in that. He does everything right. He's always fair in what he does. We may not always understand everything, but we can trust that the judgments coming from God's throne are always right. They're always just. Again, when we see the book of Revelation, that's one of the things they're declaring, righteous and just or true are all your ways. It all becomes clear in heaven that his foundation of his throne is completely right, and we can, we can rely upon God's judgments. On top of that, they're mingled with mercy and his truth. So he says, verse 15, blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. The idea is the joyful sound of worship. He says, what a blessing to be one of those people who know the wonderful celebratory sounds of worshiping God, knowing God as a God of power and help and all the things that are great about him and his faithfulness. He says, they walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. Again, speaking of how God is light. And God gives light and allows us to be able to see where we're going. John speaks of how God is light. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me won't walk in darkness. And as we draw closer to God, we begin to get more light for our life. You know, maybe you're walking and you kind of feel like you're in the dark in regards to something. Well, look, one of the best things you can do is just draw close to God. Because God is light, the Bible tells us. And when you draw closer to God and you, you live closer and walk in the light of the Lord, he says, they walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. So if you want more light, you want more clarity, just draw closer to God. And God will, will dispel his light. His very presence emanates light into our lives and lets us see how to walk more clearly. He says, verse 16, Lord, and in your name, they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness, they are exalted. So the Lord brings joy to our hearts. He exalts us when the time is right. Verse 17, for you are the glory of their strength, and in your favor, our horn, which was a term referred to strength, our horn is exalted. Lord, in your way, if you favor us, you can give us promotion or exaltation. We've seen before in the Psalms that exaltation comes neither from the east or the west, but from the Lord. And, and it's the Lord who, when he puts favor upon us, can lift us up and exalt us. For our shield belongs to the Lord and our king to the Holy One of Israel. Again, God is our protection, our shield. He's the one that shields us from things. And again, what a wonderful thing to know that, that, that God not only can shield you, but he literally can be your shield. You know, so when we're concerned about this, what if that happens to me and fearful of that? And God's, God's able to protect us. He's able to shield us from things coming into our lives that harm us. Verse 19, then you spoke in a vision to your holy one. Now here he seems to be referring to David once again. His holy one is set apart one and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. And I have exalted one chosen from the people. Talking about, no doubt, probably here, the, the exaltation of David, lifting him up from being the, the least likely of the brothers when they went to Jesse's house and God exalted him and lifted him up. Why? Because that was who God chose. God saw David's heart and God determined that he wanted to use David. And even though he was just a young shepherd boy and overlooked by everyone else, God had a plan and saw the potential of what he could do in David's life. And that was what mattered. And so this is how God brings about his purposes. Notice verse 20. He directly says it. I have found my servant. That's what God wants. Notice what's God looking for? A servant. That's what God was looking for. Not skill, not, not uh, you know, great knowledge, not smarts. You know, David was just out taking care of the sheep. But guess what? Shepherds could not be lazy people. Shepherding work was not easy work. It was laborious. You had to be engaged. You had to pay attention to what you're doing. You had to be conscientious and care and lay down your life for the sheep and take care of them and pay attention to the condition of your flock. I mean, there was a process involved. And, and so he saw David and he says, man, he's really shepherding them sheep good. I bet he would be a great shepherd for my people. If he takes care of real sheep that way, then I need to get him taken care of Real sheep, from my perspective, God would say. And so God picked David. He says, I found my servant. I found a servant, David. And then with my holy oil, I've anointed him. So what did David bring to the table? 
servanthood. Then what did God do? God anointed him as the chosen vessel that he wanted to use. And that anointing, of course, the anointing of oil spoke of the symbolism of the Holy Spirit coming upon him, the power necessary to serve and to answer God's calling. So again, Lord, here I am. I'm available. Lord, I'm a servant. That's, that's all I can do. David was just an inexperienced young servant, but God's anointing upon his life, let that servanthood become effective and fruitful. And how wonderful that the Lord is the one that anoints with his holy oil, Lord, I'll serve, but just anoint me, Lord, with the power of your spirit, with whom he says, my hand shall be established and my arm, God says, shall strengthen him. Again, notice he, David's weak. God was the first to let us know, but my arm will strengthen him. Oh, he's weak. We all know that. And he's young and inexperienced, but my arm shall strengthen him. And I love verse 22 here. The enemy shall not outwit him. Tried, but he says, the enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. Uh, Verse 23, look at the language. Don't you love God talks like this? I will beat down his foes (laughs) before his face and plague those who hate them, right? Maybe some of us who had a more sordid path before you knew the Lord, you you know what it meant when you talked about a beat down, right? And God, look what God says there. God said, he's got some enemies trying to, God says, I'm going to beat down his enemy. I'm going to bring a beat down on his enemies. Those who are trying to harm him, to hinder him, to get in his way, to do him wrong, God says, I will beat down his foes before his face. And I love God's promise to David, and it's a promise we should take to our hearts. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict or harm him. I like that. Does the enemy try and outwit us just like the enemies in David's life tried to outwit him, Saul, and even the devil, his greatest enemy? Absolutely. The devil is conniving. He's a deceiver. He's very good at what he does, trying to outwit us, to ruin our lives, to get us into sin, to get us to do destructive things. But God says, I am not going to let the enemy outwit him. Oh, Lord, thank you. In some way, God says, I'm going to be involved in his life, and I won't let the enemy outwit him. And what a wonderful promise to you know, take for your own life or to take perhaps for confidence and pray for the life of another person. Lord, please, you said you won't let the enemy outwit him. Don't let the enemy outwit him. Don't let the enemy outwit her. Don't let it happen, Lord. I'm praying for your preserving power. Lord, beat down their enemies. Deal with their foes. Don't let them be caught up in something that will ruin them. Verse 24, God says, but my faithfulness and my mercy, same theme here, shall be with him. I'm going to deal with his enemies and my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. And in my name, his horn shall be exalted. He shall be lifted up in success. Also, I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers and David's kingdom expanded to further than under any ruler in the nation of Israel, the closest to the original boundaries that God told to Abraham from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River to all the way down to Egypt to way far north. And God, under David's reign, expanded his kingdom greatly. And he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And also I will make him my firstborn, that is the exalted son, the highest of the kings of the earth. And David became certainly one of the greatest, if not the greatest kings in Israel. And my mercy I will keep for him forever. And my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever and his throne as the days of heaven. So notice God is recounting the very covenant promise that we referenced earlier on in our teaching saying very clearly, I will keep him and my covenant shall stand firm with him and I will make it endure forever. David stumbled, David failed, David's descendants stumbled and failed, but God's word never failed. God's promise remained. And how wonderful to know that to some degree, Our unfaithfulness and our failures cannot ultimately thwart the plan of God. How wonderful that God remains faithful, that God still finds ways to bring about his promises and his ultimate best plan, even amidst humanity's failures. I mean, it's just marvelous that God still 
is so willing to stay committed to what he promises and, and so faithful and that he even has the wisdom to learn how to even like work around our mistakes. <laughs> and, and oh man, well, that's right. I, and God's always got an, an option B and an option C and an option D. And, and despite our unfaithfulness, God's faithfulness always still comes to pass. And here he says, I will make sure forever his throne as the days of heaven. And if his sons, notice, God kind of alludes to this, even as I just was a moment ago here. If his sons forsake my law, and some of them did in David's family, they don't walk in my judgments. If they break my statutes and don't keep my commandments, and that happened in the, the, the kings of Judah, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. So God chastened them. When they sinned, God chastened and disciplined them because the Lord disciplines and chastens those he loves, but he didn't let them be destroyed. He just disciplined them, but it wasn't destructive. It was constructive. It was to help liberate them from wrong patterns. But notice verse 33, here's God's testament. Nevertheless, despite their failure, nevertheless, my loving kindness, I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. Man, who doesn't want that for their own life? Despite your failures, despite their failures, God says, I will not take away my loving kindness. I still love you just as much. I'm still going to be kind to you. And he says, and I will not allow my faithfulness to fail in your life. You may fail, but God says, I'll never fail in your life. I won't allow my faithfulness to fail. How wonderful to have that assurance. And my covenant, God says, of David and his family, I will not break nor alter the word that's gone out of my lips. If you're married this evening or you want to be married someday, you should circle verse 34 and put next to it marriage. You see what God says of his nature? My covenant I will not break, nor will I alter the word that's gone out of my lips. God made a covenant Love promised to his people. He even uses the analogy of marriage towards his people. And God says, I will not break that covenant. I won't. It's a covenant. No matter what the conditions, I won't break that covenant. You know, God help us that we'd have that kind of heart that God had and honor our marriage covenants. Our world and families would be a much better place if more people truly saw their marriage in that way as God sees his marriage to us spiritually. Once I have sworn by my holiness, God says, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever. God's confident in what he's gonna do. His throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Again, that word selah or think upon that because certainly through the lens of what's being described there, the Holy Spirit directing the psalmist was looking down through the ages, not just to the descendants of David naturally, but ultimately the ultimate descendant, the one greater than David, the son of David, Jesus Christ, and how God would bring these very verses to pass that his throne would endure forever because Christ's eternal throne is of him being the son of David naturally. Now, verse 38 and to kind of the conclusion of the psalm, the psalmist here kind of experiences something what we experience, right? All this stuff about, Lord, your faithfulness, you're, you're great, you're good, you're merciful. God, you are so faithful. You never fail. You always bring your best to pass. But it seems like maybe his experience in some way wasn't lining up with what he knew about what was true about God's great nature. So he's struggling a little bit in his mind mentally. Now, I know that's never happened to you. But just in case it ever does, let's just kind of see what the psalmist was feeling. He, he had this contradiction. Look what he says. Lord, you're so great. You're so faithful. But you have cast us off as if we're abhorred. Lord, wait a minute. You're faithful. But I don't understand. If you're faithful, you've cast us off. You've been furious with your anointed. You have renounced or forsaken, he says, as if you set aside the covenant of your servant and profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You've broken down all its hedges. Lord, you protect us, but where's your protection in my life? You've cast it to the ground. You've brought his strongholds to ruin. Lord, you said you'd preserve me from the enemy, but it seems like I'm being overrun by the enemy right now. All who pass by the way plunder him. 
and he is a reproach to his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his adversaries. Wait, Lord, I thought you were going to exalt me. How come I'm failing and falling and everyone else is climbing right now? I don't understand, Lord, he says. You've also turned back the edge of his sword. You've not sustained him in the battle. Lord, I, I used to succeed. Now all I'm doing is failing. I thought you wanted me to prosper and thrive, and it seems like that I can't get ahead. You've made his glory to cease, verse 44, and cast his throne to the ground. The days of his youth you have shortened, he says, and you have covered him with shame. In other words, Lord, something's not lining up here. (laughs) I know you're good and great and awesome, but my life's not going too good right now. And I don't understand. And and he just couldn't reconcile it because he was trying to line up his circumstances with what he knew was also true and real and right about God. And sometimes we find ourselves in that dilemma, right? If we want to be honest, sometimes the way life is unfolding and happening in our circumstances, it doesn't speak loud and clear to us. See how faithful God is? Lost a job. There you go. Lost a job. And sometimes bad events happen and unfortunate experiences come. And then we're trying to resonate. How does this line up with the goodness of God? And we struggle like the psalmist. He's just being genuine. Again, was it that God wasn't faithful or that God didn't love him or wasn't protecting him? No, that was how he felt. Key thing was how he felt in his interpretation of his present experiences. But we have to always remember, don't go off of how you feel. Go off of what you know by faith, no matter what it looks like, what the experiences are. Look, And then you can tell that's just what he wants to. He just wants release from it because look how he concludes the psalm. How long, Lord, in other words, Lord, how long is this going to last? I'm done with this season. How long, Lord? How long will you hide yourself forever and your wrath burn like fire? Lord, at what point are you going to make me feel like you're not mad at me anymore because my circumstances are hard? Remember how short my time is. For what futility you've created all the children of men. What man can live and not see death and can deliver his life from the power of the grave? Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses? Lord, it's been a while since I feel like I've seen your blessing in my life, which you swore to David in your truth. Remember, Lord, the reproach, the shame of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they've reproached the footsteps of your anointed. So, Lord, he said, I don't understand. I'm trying to process this, but I'm struggling, Lord, and, and, and I'm wrestling. But then look at Psalm 52, and this is how you can tell the spirit of the Lord is at work in a person's heart, because you can go, praise the Lord, super depression, <laughs> and then look how he ends Psalm 52. Again, what's he in the end? A winner. He's an overcomer. He's only got one statement to wrap up the third book of Psalms. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and Amen. <laughs> Lord, that's all I know. Just, I don't know. Blessed be the Lord. You know, it's interesting. What did Job say? You know, blessed be the Lord. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Just trusting what's true about God and worshiping him even in the midst of the challenges. Let's stand together and do that ourselves.